Good afternoon, everybody, and a very warm welcome to today's Sunday Forum. Uh, I do apologise in advance that for whatever reason the screen is not working, so we have a kind of Heath Robinson do-it-yourself um, uh, projection here on the, the laptop, which not all of you will be able to see, particularly those at the ends, you won't be able to see the angle, but some of you will get an idea. And the pictures are, I guess, on the pictures in the book? All the pictures. Yeah. And so the answer to that is, at the end of the lecture, you can buy copies of the book which have copies of the picture in them, and we'll tell you to look at them. Um, I am delighted to be doing this. Uh, it's Frances Young, OBE, so she's a member of the OBE, so she's part of a chapel down the other end of the crypt. Um, it says in my notes, is a British theologian, Methodist minister, and emeritus professor at the University of Birmingham, as well as being currently engaged in work at Queen's College, Birmingham, and started teaching at theology in Birmingham since 1971, was Edward Cadbury Chair, serving the head of department, head of school, dean of the faculty, and pro-vice-chancellor. They worked too hard at Birmingham. <laughs> um, between 86 and 2005, had an OBE for services to the theology in 1998, an elected fellow of the British Academy in 2004, and ordained as a Methodist minister in 1984, regularly leading worship locally and responding to preaching and indeed teaching invitations from around the country. The reason why I'm so pleased to be here with Frances today is that uh, when I started theological training, her books were one of the things that kept me sane as we were going <laughs> through. Um, and the thing I love about her work is that it's not simply the kind of theology that um, blows your mind and you think there's all these long words, I don't get my head around these. But it's a theology very rooted in pastoral experience, in personal experience, uh, and in a wide breadth of ways of reflection. And I find her theology very creative, uh, inspiring, encouraging. Uh, you're also very engaged in patristics, which is um, something that I did. You, the very first page of your book has a note on where the guy who supervised my PhD, Stuart Hall. Um, so it, it's lovely to, to have that engagement, too, in the work of the early church. So having read the book, I know we're in for a treat, and I hope you very much enjoy it and will learn and profit by it. And we look forward to hearing what Francis is going to share with us now. Francis, thank you very much. Thank you for your welcome. Uh, you will realise it's a challenge to reduce a book to 40 minutes. Um, so I will do my best, but I shall probably overrun, and I'm supposed to leave you 20 minutes for questions, so we'll see how it goes. Um, all through my career, I've been researching and thinking about the cross, so what more could I possibly have to say? Well, what I've offered in construing the cross is a bit different, though it does build on previous work and in places draws from it. My long-standing engagement with the early fathers of the church has encouraged my recognition that we are ourselves limited by our own cultural environment, just as they were. And so this project was undertaken as a way of trying to learn from earlier Christian cultures, reconsidering ways in which they construed the cross before the categories were narrowed by so-called atonement theories, both medieval and modern. What I did is best described as making a move from theory to theoria, 
That's a Greek word meaning something like seeing through. By theoria, I mean a kind of insight or spiritual discernment that comes through imaginative engagement, storytelling, rather than literalizing exegesis, through liturgy and living rather than legal transaction, through poetry and preaching rather than rationalistic systems. And if you can see this, you'll see the subtitle of the book is Type, Sign, Symbol, Word, Action. In a way, I take my cue from the 4th century writer Ephraim the Syrian, whose work appears and reappears in the book. He not only did theology through poetry, but he even spoke of two divine incarnations, first in the limited human language of the words of scripture, and then in the limitations of the flesh in Jesus. God speaking to us, he suggested, was like someone trying to teach a parrot to speak. And they'd put the mirror in front of their face and the parrot would look in the mirror and think it was speaking to one of his own. The language in which we speak of the infinite transcendent God is never adequate. It's always elusive, suggestive, metaphorical, pointing beyond itself. And as other 4th century writers suggest, you're only able to get near its object by a multiplication of images overlaying one another and correcting each other. Insight into the saving mystery of God's presence in one who cried out in God-forsakenness, God's absence on the cross, requires similar multiple meditations, as well as a willingness to embrace the possibility of truth in paradox. As with all theological enterprises, construing the cross demands the richness of scripture, the suggestive wealth of ecclesial traditions, the plurality of experience in different socio-cultural environments, along with endeavours to make some kind of rational sense of it all. Now I'm going to have to keep going back and forth here. Um, I want to go, oh, that's what you should have been looking at. No, that's not, that's what, oops. That's what you should have been looking at, which is the title. Um, we now go on to this, which I, you won't be able to see very clearly. It is, there are no early Christian depictions of the cross. And this is a caricature, which is found in Rome on the Palatine Hill, scrawled on a rock. And the writing says, Alexamenas honors his God. And it's, a, it's an ass being crucified, you know, an ass-headed person on a cross. So it's a reminder that actually it was a thing of horror, stigma, and ridicule. And how on earth was one to make positive sense of it? So I'm going to take you through a number of uh, signs and symbols and uh, other things. Um, and this slide, if you can see it, gives you the, the four main areas that I'm going to uh, try and say something about. 
corresponding to some of the chapters in the book. The first chapter is called Passover and Passion. And uh, on the slide, you can see the word Pascha, which was the way in which the word for Passover in Hebrew was transliterated into Greek. Pesach became Pascha. Now in Greek, the word for suffering is Paschain. So you can see immediately, uh, Greek-speaking, early Christian Christians would make a connection between Passover and suffering as though there was some intimate relationship between the two. And in the uh, middle of the second century, uh, Melito, Bishop of Sardis, wrote a homily uh, on the Passover. Um, it was rediscovered in the early part of the uh, previous century and some have now suggested it was an early Christian Passover Haggadah. In other words, just as the Jews have their sort of liturgy for Passover night, this was actually a Christian liturgy for Passover night. Um, and what you can see there is that the cross of Christ is understood in terms of a new exodus. Uh, the first exodus is what's called a type, a kind of pattern. And the second exodus is through the cross of Christ. And the escape is not from Pharaoh in Egypt, but from the devil and all his works into the promised land, the new paradise. And so the whole of this Passover Haggadah takes the old story of how they escaped the angel of death with the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and all that, and rereads it in terms of the overarching story of the entire Bible from the beginning, then things going wrong, and then God putting things right, and so to the end, from the fall to the restoration of paradise. So this overarching biblical story becomes the framework within which the Passover story is reread. Now, this whole way of looking at how the cross fitted, the blood of the cross protecting from the angel of death and all that kind of thing, uh, is, of course, anticipated in Scripture. The Last Supper is presented as a Passover meal. Um, it was probably, in fact, the earliest way of interpreting the cross, the lamb slain to enable escape from sin and protection from the angel of death. The Passion was construed in terms of Passover in the context of early Christian commemorative liturgies. And here we have one of the early catacomb paintings. Uh, it's a meal. People gathered together sharing bread and wine, uh, proclaiming the Lord's death till he come, receiving life through his body given in death and protection from his blood shed. It seems to have been in line with Jesus' own signification of the meaning of the cross at the Last Supper. It's highly likely, given the Passover references in Paul and the Gospels, that this was indeed the very first way in which the shame of the cross was turned into a focus of celebration. Now, I've dealt with that one fairly briefly. There's a whole big chapter in the book 
uh, but some of it I felt would already be a bit familiar. Now, by the time that um, Jesus was alive, the Passover lambs had to be slain in the temple. Uh, it was, uh, of course, originally a domestic thing. People did it, they slew their lamb and did it in their homes. But by the time of Jesus, the Passover lambs were slain in the temple and came to look like other sacrifices. And so my second chapter asks the question, do we moderns really begin to understand what sacrifice meant or means? Or what it means to live a life where sacrifices are part of ordinary everyday practice? Isn't it all too plausible that we project our ideas back? And uh, so in this second chapter, I go back to my earliest research, which was published as Sacrifice and the Death of Christ, um, and re-examine it in the light of newer work on sacrifice and newer debates about the meanings of sacrifice. And one thing, if I can just say quickly, one thing is clear, sacrifice was never about punishment, and all too often we hear uh, the cross being proclaimed as God's punishment on sin, taken by Jesus rather than us, don't we? Um, sacrifice has nothing to do with that. In fact, looked at from an anthropological viewpoint, sacrifice has a lot more to do with food and its preparation than anything to do with even communal violence and scapegoating, which is at the heart of some of the most recent theories associated with a French scholar called Girard. Looked at from the viewpoint of the sacrificers, the practice had to do with maintaining relationship with the unseen powers that would or would not bless their lives with goods and necessities, especially food. Now what this implies is that sacrifice was about the sanctity of life and the mysterious cycle whereby life is nourished through death. For living creatures, are entirely dependent for sustenance on the destruction and consumption of other life. And in the case of humankind, preparing it to be eaten as food by plucking, grinding, dissecting and cooking. Sacrifice acknowledges and sanctifies the death and violence involved in eating to stay alive. For every time we eat, something dies that we might live. Furthermore, dependence for life on life's ultimate source requires the acknowledgement not only of the seriousness of taking it, but also of life's sheer giftedness. And so a refusal to take it for granted, the honoring of its providers and the mutual sharing of its goodness. So we're talking about meals again. The importance of food and its preparation in scripture in relation to sacrifice is quite clear. When Deuteronomy insisted that there was only one sanctuary, the temple at Jerusalem, it had to make provision for the secular slaughter of animals for meat. Whereas Leviticus presumes that every time an animal is killed, it's a sacrificial act and it's to be carried out with the appropriate ritual. 
Those creatures defined as impure and unsuitable for sacrifice turn out to be wild animals or domesticated beasts of burden, while those which qualify as pure for sacrifice are unblemished specimens from flocks and herds raised for their meat and their milk, and also as a side, say, wool and leather as a side uh, issue. Alongside animal sacrifice are other required offerings, in particular the first fruits of every harvest, in other words, all the rewards of agricultural labour which will be gathered into barns for the sustenance of the people. So I want to share with you a key quote. What is offered in sacrifice is not only always food, but it is uniformly offered in cooked form. To make a cereal offering, the grain is ground into flour, mixed with other ingredients, and baked. Grapes are offered as wine and olives as oil. Other items like sheep and cattle are presented raw and processed in the sacrificial rite itself, killed and made an offering by fire to God or by some other means cooked for consumption in a sacred feast. And then there are instructions for every sacrifice as to who's to eat them and what's to be eaten and all the rest of it. Now, I think this aspect of sacrifice is something we have failed to grasp because killing for meat is removed for, from our experience in abattoirs and governed by secular rules for humane slaughter. For people who lived close to the land, for whom killing for meat was a normal part of life, Indeed, the culling of the male young was inevitable to maintain the flocks and herds. Sacrificial ritual was a way of acknowledging the seriousness of taking any life ever, even for food. The taking of life was made possible by sanctifying it, sacralizing it. And this reinforced the sense of dependence on the divine source of all life and on the nourishment on which it depended. Just as an aside, I suggest that maybe the loss of our contact with all that may account for the dysfunctional relationship our society has with food. I won't enlarge on that, but the waste and the obesity, and you, you know, uh, all the rest of it. Now, the second thing about sacrifice is that it was the only known way of worship the Greek word liturgia, from which we get liturgy, meant providing the wherewithal for the maintenance of sacrificial offerings and public feasts in honour of the gods. Now, in our society, parties and gifts are associated with a variety of intentions. We may want to express gratitude, we may want to offer an apology, we may want to celebrate a birthday or a wedding, we may want to commemorate an anniversary. Now, in ancient societies, concrete social interactions of that kind also applied to the gods. There were different kinds of sacrifice, gift offerings, communion rites, sin offerings, sacrifices, animal or otherwise, essentially smoothed and cemented reciprocal relations with a particular divine being. The relationship was fostered by shared meals, gifts offered in tribute or in return for protection. I underline this was the only known way of worship. 
Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 10 assumes, assumes exactly this. You can't share in the altar of the demons and share in Christ. Remember? 1 Corinthians 10. And if you turn to the Hebrew Bible, we find there too that worship consists in gifts of foodstuffs and feasts, whole burnt offerings made in thanksgiving or homage, but the vast majority of them were communion offerings where people gathered and feasted together and God's presence was there feasting with them. And meat wasn't an everyday thing back in those societies. Sacrifice was fundamentally about relationship. And where they were atoning uh, sacrifices or sin offerings, it was to re-establish a relationship in which there had been a break. And all that's reinforced, of course, by the biblical covenant with God. It was not some kind of transactional deal that went on in sacrifice. Rather, sacrifice was uh, a desire to respond and maintain the relationship that was built uh, by the generosity and grace of God, the source of every good gift. Now, how does all that relate to understanding the cross? The crucifixion was hardly a sacrifice. There was no officiating priest, no altar, no fire, no ritual slaying, dividing, and apportioning of bodily parts, no blood manipulation, and all the rest of it. Passover was a feast commemorating the sacrifice and consumption of a lamb whose blood had kept away the angel of death. Among Christians, this was soon being replayed as a commemorative meal in which, rather than the meat from the sacrificial lamb, the body of Christ was consumed in the form of bread and in the form of wine. His blood protected the participants from death. It was, as an early Christian writer would say, the medicine of immortality, an antidote to death. Then sacrifice had established the covenant between God and Abraham in Genesis, and sacrificial blood had sealed the covenant between God and Moses in Exodus. And here was another covenant in blood, fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy of a new covenant. The commemoration of the sacrifice by which the new covenant was established and a new Exodus made possible was a communal feast, a sharing of food, which was also, according to Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon at the end of the second century, first fruits offered and received in thanksgiving for creation. Another pointer to the dynamics of sacrifice being to do with food. Now, all of these types reinforce that overarching story which we found lying behind Melito's interpretation of Passover. The story from the beginning, the loss of communion with God, restoration of communion through the cross of Christ, God's way of dealing with humanity's solidarity in sin and consequent death. So now I come on to the uh, third chapter in the book, which is about the tree of life. And this is where I began to get really excited, um, this symbol of the tree of life. 
by means of the obedience by which he obeyed unto death hanging on a tree, Christ undid the old disobedience occasioned by the tree. This again is Irenaeus at the end of the second century. He developed it in a massive work against heresies. They had a false reading of Genesis in his view. Uh, and this is how it went. We know because in the 20th century we've rediscovered a lot of Gnostic texts from these groups. And they turned Genesis upside down. The serpent became the embodiment of wisdom, persuading Eve to seek knowledge and escape the clutches of the creator God who had imprisoned their spiritual selves in the body and material existence. In reply to reading Genesis upside down, Irenaeus reaffirmed the identity of the creator and the one true God containing all things yet not contained, and asserted what strikes us as the more obvious reading of Genesis. The issue is temptation, the challenge of obedience or disobedience, and I quote Irenaeus, the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. Adam showed repentance hiding himself, and so he was driven out of paradise and removed far from the tree of life because God pitied him. Because if he ate of the tree of life as well as the tree of knowledge, he would be a sinner forever and evil irremediable. In other words, the exclusion from paradise was an act of God's mercy. But in Christ, the word of God was united to Adam's human substance and rendered humankind living and perfect. So that as in the natural Adam we were all dead, so in the spiritual we may all be made alive. Death is swallowed up in victory and God's handiwork perfected according to the image and likeness of God, which is the incarnate word. So, Christ did away with humankind's disobedience with regard to a tree by becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross, Philippians chapter 2. In other words, by obedience shown on a tree. Again, quoting Paul, Irenaeus speaks of fastening our debts to the cross so that as we were debtors to God by a tree, by a tree we might receive the remission of our debt. He summed up everything by being made flesh and hanging on a tree, making a recapitulation of that disobedience which had occurred in connection with the tree through the obedience exhibited when hung on a tree. And so the church is planted as a garden where we may eat of every tree. Now there are two questions that arise from all this. Why is the cross so easily associated with the tree? Doesn't make a lot of sense in English, does it? Well, it is a move already made in the New Testament. The Greek word xylon, which was on an earlier slide, but it's a bit heavy weather to go back to it, and you probably can't see it anyway. The Greek word xylon basically means timber. It's sometimes used for tree, and it does appear in the Greek translation of Genesis for the trees in paradise. 
More usually, it's used for a stick or a club. They came to Gethsemane with swords and clubs. It may be a pole, a post, or a gibbet. We might call it a gallows tree. And so it came to be used for a Roman cross. The book of Acts twice picks up the phrase hanging on xulon from its common use in the Greek Bible for execution by hanging and uses it for the crucifixion of Jesus. It must have been a very early way of referring to the cross. In Galatians, Paul already makes an argument from passages in Deuteronomy about hanging and cursing. Deuteronomy reads, when someone is convicted of a crime punishable by death and is executed and you hang his body on a xulon, his corpse must not remain there all night upon the xulon. You shall bury him that same day, for anyone hanging on a xulon is under God's curse. And elsewhere, uh, Deuteronomy says that uh, cursed be anyone who upholds, does not uphold the words of the law by observing them. Now Paul picks up both those passages when he writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed be everyone who hangs on a zulon. He then affirms that Christ bore the curse arising from failure to keep the law, bearing the curse brought on anyone who was hanged for a crime. Irenaeus's point becomes much clearer if we understand all those connections. Well then, what about two trees in Genesis? There are two trees in the Genesis narrative. We don't always notice it. There's the tree of knowledge, which brought about the fall, and there's also the tree of life. And in the early 5th century, a, a, a bishop wrote, Adam was set a trial with regard to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, whereas the tree of life was proposed as his prize for keeping the commandment. So there's disobedience in relation to the first, and Adam is banished to avoid the second. And that's actually implicit in what we were quoting from Irenaeus earlier. It's explicit in many other early Christian discussions, especially in the hymns on paradise from the Syrian poet Ephraim. For him, Adam and Eve were created neither mortal nor immortal, if they had been obedient, they would eventually have been allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge and then go on to receive fruit from the tree of life. In other words, they were created immature, not yet ready to eat of the tree of knowledge and not even aware of the tree of life. Now, I have actually printed out some marvellous quotes from Ephraim, but I look at my watch and I realise I can't possibly share them, so you will have to buy the book to read, <laughs> to read these wonderful poems from Ephraim. Now, the Tree of Life has been a significant symbol throughout Christian history. There have been extraordinary depictions of it uh, in some modern art in, in cathedrals around the country already. I have one or two pictures here um, to show you. That is the Egyptian hieroglyph, the Ankh, and in Egyptian Coptic it, it means life. And this symbol was adopted as the symbol of the cross by Coptic Christians, Egyptian Christians, still use that. 
And the next picture, if you can see it, is from a manuscript which uh, shows the ankh with birds perched on it and flowers and all the rest of it. And it's, it's like the tree of life, the tree of paradise mm -hmm. um, in, in this manuscript. And then if we come on to this, this is a medieval depiction of an extraordinary book which was written about the tree of life. Uh, and uh, as you can see, it's uh, the arms uh, with the leaves for the healing of the nations, a quote from Revelation. Um, and it shows all the various elements in this which were explored in this book called The Tree of Life from Medieval Times. And that is a modern picture which I find very moving. That is not in the book because it would have cost a lot to get permission to reproduce it. Um, it it's, as you can see, a, a tree uh, which with barbed wire represents all the horrors of the 20th century in its way. Uh, and uh, it's been shown in a way that reminds you of Christ on the cross. Um, uh, very briefly, uh, I'm going to tantalise you because there is also a whole chapter on the serpent. Well, a whole chapter on a lot of other types and signs and early Christian depictions of the cross, uh, but a lot of it is about the serpent. Um, let me tell you the personal story here. Um, I was on a cycling trip in France many years ago, and we stopped in a town, village, and decided to go and look in the church, which looked interesting. And, and it, it was an old church, and parts of it were a bit tumbled down. Um, but inside, there was something like this. Um, it was just a two, it was a modern crucifix with a piece of wood behind and another flat piece of wood uh, on the front in the shape of Christ, which is what I've tried to draw there. And I looked at this sinuous shape, you know, and I suddenly thought, Christ the serpent. And then later, I discovered that on Mount Nebo in Israel, there is this remarkable sculpture of the serpent on the cross, Christ the serpent. Now, you may remember in John 3.14, um, it speaks of as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, da-da-da-da. Um, and you remember the story in Numbers, they're all bitten by snakes, and, and then Moses holds up the bronze serpent, and if they stare at the bronze serpent, they get healing. Well, a serpent was a symbol of wisdom in the ancient world. And uh, I just want to tantalize you by saying that uh, it's very intriguing how the early Christians found the image of Christ as serpent. Christ as wisdom is important in Paul, of course, and elsewhere. Um, both the, uh, intriguing and difficult, because, of course, the serpent is the temper, tempter in the Garden of Eden. So you have this ambivalence around the serpent. And if you're going to hear about that, you'll have to buy the book. Uh, so, I think it's time now to move on and just in the concluding few minutes say something about the issues and consequences of all this for us. One of the first is uh, what I was talking about at the beginning, the nature of theological language. Um, there has been a lot of reference to Ephraim, the Syrian poet, 
Fundamentally, his theology was grounded in the impossibility of reducing God to the limits of human language. In the face of heretical claims to define God, along with others in the period, he asserted that to define is to set limits or boundaries on God, and so is blasphemous. Whoever is capable of investigating becomes the container of what he investigates, he says, and knowledge which is capable of containing the omniscient is greater than him. In other words, if you think you can define God, you've reduced God to the size of your own brain. God is hidden, yet God has revealed the divine self, and Ephraim explores different ways in which this revelation has taken place, amongst other things, insisting on symbols, and the Syriac word for Ephraim is one that includes the meanings secret and mystery. And so creation and scripture are full of signs that speak to us of God, but they're always oblique. We get glimpses of this hidden reality. Now, it seems to me it's vital that we take this approach to theological language when it comes to construing the cross. None of the theories of atonement are adequate. They each carry elements inappropriate to the situation because they're projections of human assumptions about justice, mercy, love, propitiation, expiation, forgiveness, victory, liberation, and so on. To suggest that God has to exact a penalty for sin is blasphemy to subject God to a principle outside the divine self. To suggest that the Son has to placate the wrath of the Father is to drive a coach and horses through the doctrine of the Trinity, itself a concept of God which requires subtle counterbalancing of opposing ideas. So all I want to suggest is that no single theory contains the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And to imagine it might is not just setting limits on meaning, but claiming control over it. It seems to me significant that the fathers never came up with a single theory of atonement. Rather, they drew on a multiplicity of images and associations, signs and symbols, of which we've explored just a few. The second thing that arises is the old, much-discussed issue of myth and history. Because, of course, a lot of it draws on the opening chapters of Genesis, aspects of the story of Adam and Eve, visions of paradise, primordial and eschatological. And I hardly need to spell out the difficulties our culture has with such a focus. The theory of evolution not only challenges the biblical account of creation, but also inevitably reduces the Eden narrative to myth. How then can we take seriously the parallel between Adam and Christ, which we already find in Paul, when one character belongs to myth and the other to history? Surely there's a danger of reducing the gospel to myth in the process. Now, once again, in answering this one, I would like to quote long screeds of Ephraim's poetry, but there isn't time. But essentially, what's happening in some of his poetry is that Adam becomes a representative or universal figure who lives in every person. That is what his Hebrew name implies. 
in intriguing ways the Christ of the New Testament, as well as being a particular historical person, is a parallel representative or universal figure. In Christ, we all become a new creation, adopted sons of God, conformed to his likeness. And the drama of the gospel narrative exposes recurring aspects of the human condition, the deep flaw in human being. The hero of the story is presented as one who, as an innocent prophet, challenged the vested interests and uneasy status quo of his time and is judiciously disposed of by the structures and powers of the day. People flock after him, then turn against him. He's roughed up by soldiers guarding him. The authorities wash their hands of him. He's progressively isolated. The disciples sleep in the garden. The betraying friend kisses him. The right-hand man denies him. The crowds desert him. And finally he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The death of Jesus is a paradigm story exposing human reality. With our memories haunted by Holocaust and Hiroshima, we see daily news bulletins replete with violence, torture, hostilities, miscarriages of justice, genocide, bullying and scapegoating. The details of the gospel story are particular, but the components of the tragedy are perennial it's part universal story, part particular story. Jesus Christ focuses it, deepens it, sharpens it. Yet it's also our story and one that rings true to life as we know it. So it is both myth in the technical sense of a transcendent, symbolic, unverifiable story that gives meaning to existence and also history in the sense that the myth has intersected with the actual existence of a certain person on earth at a particular time in a particular place. The mythical element is precisely what makes it ring true. Factuality reduces it to just another vicious miscarriage of justice. Myth enables it to give hope and meaning to our lives. The association of Adam and Christ exposes the depths of the human predicament and the promise of its transformation. Now those reflections can be filled out further by reflecting on the, the nature of tragedy and how tragedy works, how tragic drama functions. And I do that in the book and in other parts of my writings. But if I can quote Aristotle, poetry is both more philosophical and more serious than history, since poetry speaks of universals, history of particulars. So then, if I had further time, I would develop the thought that's been running through all along, that the theoria into the meaning of the cross comes through liturgy and particularly through the Eucharist. But I want to conclude with this. The direction the journey took in writing this book caught me by surprise. I once heard someone comment on the way we tend to put flowers on the cross. 
forgetting it was probably the most cruel and sadistic form of public execution ever devised. Many a time in the past, I've decried that kind of sentimentality. Furthermore, I've previously focused on the cross, either as the Christian form of theodicy, in other words, dealing with the problem of suffering, or as the way of atonement, dealing with the problem of evil and sin. But this exploration of the types, signs, and symbols used for the cross by the early church has shifted the focus quite dramatically. It was not the suffering Christ they turned to, as people did in the Middle Ages, nor was it the penalty of death for our sins they explored, as evangelicals do. Rather, it was a quite paradoxical focus on life. Whether construed as a sacrifice or a gallows tree, the cross paradoxically becomes a sign of life renewed. It is as though the fathers were seeing through death to life in all its fullness, as if that is what the cross is all about, new life emerging paradoxically from death. Then God's creative grace alone can effect it. Unlike theories which purport to control and explain, the overlaying of these images, along with metaphor, enigma, paradox, can stimulate theoria, generate creative insights whereby to construe the cross, and this despite the elusiveness and so on. And so is fed the fitting response of joy, thanksgiving, and praise. For in the end is my beginning, and death proves to be birth to newness of life. And we call it Good Friday. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Francis. That's um, a very good way into the book. But so you need to read the book. <laughs> more about it. Fascinating stuff. Um, we've got about uh, 15 minutes for questions, if you'd like to ask any. Yeah. Is the um, Greek book for Bethlehem, when you're talking about, is it possible to get out of the Yes, it is possible. Um, St. Vladimir's Seminary in New York publishes translations, beautiful translations, of a lot of the early fathers of the church. And if you Google, uh, on, go on Amazon and, and get, um, uh, get St. Ephraim, E-P-H-R-E-M, St. Ephraim, Hymns on Paradise, Hymns on Paradise, they'll almost certainly, you'll find the St. Vladimir's Seminary translation will come up. And they're little, they're little paperbacks, they're not desperately expensive. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Am I allowed? Is that right? Um, Do I have to stand up to ask No, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you need to... Oh, yes, we, that's fine. Um, in the book you talked about uh, the corporate nature, and you are just talking in your lecture about that, the corporate nature of salvation and on how to construe the cross. Mm-hmm. And if I remember rightly, you have a reference in passing to the way that our society has lost something of that mm-hmm. corporate dimension of 
the celebration and understanding of forgiveness and new life. Mm. And I wondered whether you'd had any further reflections on uh, the way that uh, we might be able to speak into that as a church, rather than simply doing our own thing over here, how could we engage with wider society about its need to discover that sense of corporate life and renewal and forgiveness? Yeah, this is something that I've decided is my next project. Um, because I, I still remember vividly as a student being uh, taught that, you know, Christ was a corporate personality in the New Testament because we're all, as it were, uh, taken up into Christ in so much of what the New Testament says. Um, and it does seem to me, it seemed to me then, that this is something we find very difficult um, because of our individualistic way of looking at things. Um, I think our individualism, I have to confess, uh, has been reinforced by the evangelical tradition from John Wesley, of which I am, of course, a representative, um, and namely that you, that, that, that you have to, as it were, make it your own by taking Jesus as your personal saviour. Um, and so this individualism has been, I think, underlined in the way in which many people now think you know, if you don't make the faith your own, it isn't real or something. Um, but um, I've been <coughs> starting to think about this, and I think it's also to do with a big, big shift in how we understand our identity. Um, we tend to understand our identity by our story, our personal story, uh, the continuity of our individual consciousness. Now, I think this is very much uh, a thing that's happened in the time of modernity, and that uh, in other societies, possibly still in non-Western societies, but certainly in earlier societies, there was a stronger sense that your identity was in your relationships. In other words, your identity consisted of being son of so-and-so. Your identity consisted in the uh, extended family to which you belong, because there's another big difference. You know, The nuclear family of modern society is fundamentally different from the extended families in traditional societies. Um, and, of course, in some parts of the world, the extended family might be opened up into a sense of a, a group of, of kins, people who belong to a tribe, and, and so on and so on. Your, your identity was bound up with where you belonged in society, and so it was much easier to think of this kind of solidarity. I mean, where did infant baptism come? It, it came because the whole family would follow the conversion of the patriarch who was head of the family. And even the children were to be incorporated into Christ as part of that conversion process. It was a, there was a kind of solidarity amongst people. Um, and in some ways, I think, the identity politics around us in our multicultural society means that people are actually 
realising that their identity is linked with people they are kin to and cultures in which they have been formed and so on and so on. And I think that could be the, the seed of beginning to help people to realise that we're not just discrete individuals. We, we are profoundly social animals and we are profoundly affected as individuals by what's going on in society around us. And perhaps I could, another, <laughs> I'm going off a bit off on a tangent, but another thing I've been thinking about in relation to this um, if, you're, if you're trying to uh, think about the amount of mental health distress there is in our society, particularly amongst young people, um, I was asked to do some theological and biblical reflection around that. And of course, immediately you start thinking of gospel stories in which demons are cast out because they would have understood the oddities that we understand in terms of mental health as being possessed by demons. Now, you will know the story of the man possessed by demons who was living among the tombs across the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, that was actually an area where, if you like, some of the Holy Land had been taken over by um, Greco-Romans and there had been settled Greek cities around there and it was Gentile territory. We know it's Gentile territory because there were pigs there, weren't there? And so this man is living among the tombs. He's in Gentile territory. The name he gives, the demons give, we are legion. Legion is a loan word in Greek from Latin and is, of course, the word used of the Roman army. Legions were units of the Roman army. And so he's been invaded by legions and the legions ask to be sent into the pigs. So there are numerous symbolic political things going on in that story. And this individual somehow is bearing the cost of the social and political reality in which people in his society feel oppressed and, and invaded and, uh, and all the rest of it. You see what I'm getting at? Um, and it, it seems to me that actually if we start thinking about it, an awful lot of what's happening in our, in our society is that individuals are bearing the cost of the way society is. Um, it may be in mental health, it may be uh, the obesity epidemic, it may be a whole range of things where, if you like, we are caught up together in things. Um, these are just some of my initial sort of ponderings around this whole area of, of how, as human beings, we live in solidarity with one another, for good or ill. Thank you. Yeah. I'm an organist, but uh, this morning we sang, I sang quite happily, I crucified thee yes. in my hymns. We sang my song in Love on Love. Yes. There's a lot of our hymns, actually, which are very personal. Yes. Uh, Jesus, you lover of my soul, lover of faith is mine. Yeah. But actually, I think it's about time we stop to look more closely at the theology of these things. 
what did they actually say about the body that we have seen? I, I think that's important. I mean, this is this question that scholars have asked about the Psalms. A lot of the Psalms have I, 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 I. And actually, it almost certainly, the Psalms came from corporate temple worship. And it's not just I as a discrete person. It is, it, in some of them, it's I as the king who represents the entire people. In some of them, it is Israel or Judah as a corporate body in relation to God. Um, now, if that is true of the Psalms, I think uh, it's possible for us to begin to think in those terms in relation to hymns, though, of course, a lot of the hymns have been written in the post-evangelical revival period in which the individual... Um, is, as it were, set up to, to be a discreet individual who makes the faith their own. It's a very modern thing, I would suggest, a very modern thing that you are personally responsible for, as it were, signing on the dotted line and saying, I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah one more. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, this is a difficult problem. Uh, thank you. I, I think you were actually addressing it quietly, but shades of the cross interpretation of meanings in this modernist world, post truth, yeah. fake news, yeah. how do we look at the cross? Yeah, um, I, I think it might be helpful to follow through some of the lines I was suggesting, in which, which treat it as tragic drama now if you start treating it as tragic drama in which we see something deeply true about the reality of humanity and about our lives um, you can if you like say well it functions like a good deal of fiction does um, and it actually is true in a way that um, some of Shakespeare's plays are true to the reality of what it means to be human. Um, you see, I think we've got horribly hung up on factuality. Um, it's partly because of the influence of science, though actually proper science is much more um, symbolic and models and, and all sorts of things. I, I know it's highly mathematical, um, but I think we have got, we, we, we almost treat questions of truth in relation to the Gospels as if we were detectives trying to sort out precisely what happened in a traffic accident. You see what I mean? And, and it seems to me that an awful lot of the Gospels must be read differently from that. There, there is, that's not what's important. So it goes beyond words. Yeah, I mean, this is what I... Um, yeah, I mean, I was saying two things. It all goes beyond words, but also... we. I know this word myth and its category is controversial, but, but if you understand myth in its technical sense as a universal story which sheds light on our universal human predicament, then it seems to me that... It's important to see the Gospels as myth as well as history. 
Thank you. And I would, I would uh, I'm sorry to be, I, I sound like a salesman, but I would say that um, Frances' chapter on language and the use of language in her book is one of the um, most straightforward I've read, and again, profoundly put in the way that we understand language. Uh, she even makes Rowan Williams comprehensible um, <laughs> in there, which I think is, is fantastic. Um, uh, can I just uh, draw to a close uh, just to give you uh, one or two trailers for what's coming next before I say thank you to Francis at the end. Um, again, it says in my notes, on Sunday the 7th of May, the next Sunday forum in a month's time will be Inventing the Universe with Alastair McGrath. Sounds very interesting, that thing to be doing together. Um, and the next cathedral event that the uh, adult learning is doing is The God Who Speaks, The Bible and the Holy Spirit, with Kate Coleman and Paula Gooder on the 6th of June. So that's two sixes. Um, no, it isn't. It's the 7th and the 6th. 7th of May and 6th of June. And that's an evening event on the cathedral floor. And for more information, do pick up a copy or go to the website of the St. Paul's Adult Learning uh, to find out about that. And, um, of course, Francis actually lives out what she talks about in terms of poetry and... Within the book, there are five poems of her own in terms of engaging uh, with language. And I just wanted to conclude, you know, I was going to read the last sentence, but you did that already, so it was great. Um, but I wanted to conclude with just a little bit of her reflection uh, in a poem called Paradox about the nature of the cross. Infinite its reach, its feet on the ground, its arms outstretched, embracing cosmic space, constricted though they be by wood and nails, pointing beyond, yet printing its shape just here, always positioned in one particular place. A single moment in time, one victim's pain, which somehow exposes all creation's hurt. It showers blood sweat and tears, cleansing cascades, restoring vitality. Its feet touch earth, its reach is infinite. And Francis, thank you so much for sharing with us many of your lifelong reflections on these things. And we look forward to your next instalment as your reflections continue. Um, for the next piece of work you'll be doing. But thank you so much for coming down from Birmingham to be with us today. We're hugely grateful. Thank you. Thank you.